0: Here we go get letters, we get and tax of letters welcome to michael and us i'm will sloan here as always with luke savage hey everyone and there are some topics that are just too great some topics that are too important too vital to be encompassed merely by luke and myself this week's episode will address one such topic the 1998 nora efron comedy you've got mail starring tom hanks and meg ryan what is it what does it mean for our world today We are joined by two guests who will help illuminate the situation. You know them both from Jacobin Magazine. We have Megan Day.
1: Hi, glad to be here.
0: And returning champion, Bronco Marcatic.
2: Hello, good to be back.
0: Before we get to the movie, there is of course much happening in the wild world of politics. Uh, We are coming a few days off of a widely seen vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and Kamala Harris. Bronco has written a piece for Jacobin about the debate, a short piece that was published today. Bronco, uh, what did you think of the debate? Uh, you liked
2: it, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, like pretty much everyone in the entire world, it seems like, thought it was uh, deathly boring. People talked about how this was kind of a throwback debate, uh, and it was in the sense of— it. it Felt like after Trump uh, won in 2016, there was this great break from the status quo. That, that even though th- Trump was a new and, and scarier thing than we'd seen, there was at least uh, something different, you know, with the rise of Trump and then Sanders and, and various uh, socialist politicians. Uh, and this felt like it was a, a reset. It's like, uh, which I think is what a lot of people want. They want a reset. They want to just pretend the last four years didn't happen and then we can just go back to the Obama era. And so we had this. Corporate uh, liberal who masquerades as a progressive, taking on this terrifying right-wing religious extremist. Uh, Both of them lying through their teeth. Uh, The the right-winger is always trying to make the liberal politician sound a lot better than she actually is. And the liberal politician vehemently denying that she is anywhere near this bold and ambitious and, and good. So um, that, that sort of is the, the main takeaway from the debate. I mean, otherwise, in terms of like what they said, so much of it was just kind of uh, untrue and just sort of wrote script points that they just um, memorized that it just, there wasn't really that much interesting on the on the substance really of the debate.
3: Well, I was not uh, I was not actually able to watch the debate or uh, I should say I was not really wanting to watch the debate. So I managed to give this one uh, a pass, but it sounds like... Um... Sounds like the whole thing kind of, I mean, crested around like this fly that landed on Pence's head. So (laughs) like basically all the stuff on my feeds about the debate have been related to the fly or just like Kamala Harris being like throwing epic shade. Uh, I don't know, Megan, were you able to watch the debate? I
1: caught a little bit of it. I want to say about the fly that there's something really depressing about everyone wanting to talk about that. But I I think I have a read on what's going on. I feel like because of the atomization and isolation of the pandemic. People are desperate for some sort of common experience. And so they all noticed a bug that was flying around and had this sort of like experience together of talking about the bug. It's like not interesting. It's not funny. None of the jokes were funny. It's really kind of a sad spectacle, but it's gotta just be that people are like, feeling like we live all in our own little silos and all so separately that they want to talk about. And also the debate was just so boring, right? The the fact that we have this fly meme coming out of it, that's the most interesting thing that happened during the debate. That's really pretty pathetic. I will say that I did manage to tune in during the section where Kamala Harris insisted that Joe Biden would not ban fracking. Um, (laughs) And uh, that was also that was also pretty sad. I think that, you know, actually, apparently Joe Biden's climate plan does actually have strong regulations on fracking that sort of point toward it's eventual phase out right but that's written by other people and i'm sure they just said yeah go for it you can write this we'll put a check mark next to it now we see their true colors uh, some people indicated that her saying that sh- that they were not going to ban fracking was red meat to the donors other people said that it was about winning voters in Pennsylvania i'm not sure what it was but i know that it was really depressing i think if you wanted to win voters in rural Pennsylvania who are worried about their job prospects you could simply talk about the thing that they don't want to talk about which which is the Green New Deal, which is a plan for creating 20 million green jobs. It, it in fact, solves the problem. The problem is not that people in rural Pennsylvania love fracking, it's that they love being able to make a decent income and provide for their families.
3: Well, yeah. And as people quickly pointed out, um, there's actually polling out of Pennsylvania that shows that a majority of Pennsylvanians actually want to ban fracking, or at least open to the idea. So, I mean, it's an even worse excuse on the part of the Democrats than normal. I don't know if you all saw, but Megan, I, I really like your analysis about The Fly and kind of what that says about how atomized we all are. Uh, something else I noticed about The Fly is how quickly, I don't know, this kind of like silly image from the debate, um, how how quickly the takes on it descended into total farce and kind of like Infowars territory. I don't know if you all saw the clip of Steve Schmidt on, I guess, MSNBC talking about it. Basically, he's talking about the fly landing on Pence, and it's just totally deadpan. And he's talking about how this is like a demonic symbol. And uh, as people quickly pointed out, there is a clip from Alex Jones four years ago talking about the phenomenon of Obama having flies land on him. During Obama's famous Cairo speech in 2009, a fly landed on him. And I guess there were other instances as well that the folks at Infowars, being keenly observant as they are kind of honed in on. And so, yeah, Steve Schmidt uh, sounds exactly like Alex Jones, which I think is just the perfect convergence for the final weeks of the 2020 um, the 2020 election
1: what I want to say to that Luke is that it makes me think that the reason everybody wanted to talk about the fly after the debate was this sort of desperation to recover some sort of shared reality but very quickly the image of the fly was then co-opted back again into all of this conspiracy stuff that really is like the or ur- example of the fact that we don't have a consensus reality anymore so so much for that
2: the fly was kind of a return to like the apolitical or the more apolitical time of, of the Obama era before, you know, people had to care about things. And so, yeah, the focusing on this kind of silly or zany spectacle, it's a way to kind of reclaim that time when politics was just about popular culture and like every now and then you see something funny, but you didn't actually have to care about it. You didn't have to actually care about uh, what, what any, anyone was saying. Yeah. That, that's actually a very terrifying idea because if you listen to what Harris and particularly Pence were saying, it it was really pretty alarming stuff. And the idea that people, the takeaway from this debate was that they thought, oh, oh, thank God, this is what we're going back to a guy who can sell Trump's agenda uh, without any of the personal baggage of Trump and do it in a competent, calm manner, um that's what we want you know i that is a completely baffling take to me.
0: You mentioned a minute ago that that's very much uh, how a lot of the at least the mainstream media received the debate as this um as this reset as this return to normalcy. How successful do you think that will actually be? To what extent do you think a return to normalcy is possible?
2: Uh, You know, I think it all depends on the wider conditions. I mean, I I think personally the idea that Biden is just going to be the simple restoration is is really way overstated. I mean, the, the things that happened under this last year of Trump that have made it so chaotic happened, obviously Trump made them much, much, much worse. But they would have happened with or without Trump. I mean, you know, coronavirus would have happened. It may have been handled better, but it still would have happened. It still would have thrown people into chaos. It still would have led to a massive corporate bailout. People's uh, jobs would be lost. Uh, there would be economic concentration that we're seeing now. I think that that would still happen. The police protests that have roiled the United States for the last, you know, however, uh, however many months. That still would have happened. The violent police response to those protests would have still happened under Biden administration, and so would the apocalyptic fires on the West Coast and so many of the other climate disasters that we're seeing. So I think this idea that Biden will come in and everything will be hunky dory—that that that is wildly optimistic, especially if you remember what the Republicans did to uh, Obama, who was an actual very popular and inspiring political figure, and yet was really beaten into the ground by by very ruthless Republican obstructionism. And um, if that happens, plus people continue to be killed by the police, regions of the United States are, are thrown into chaos through climate and other disasters, and there's continuing economic and, and other shocks. The, the, this idea, this normal that we are pining for, I'm not so sure that it's going to Uh, ever make really a a comeback.
3: We should get to the movie uh, shortly because there's a lot to say about that. But just on this kind of general theme of there no longer being a shared reality and there being kind of a desire for one. On our last episode where we watched a documentary about Jim Carrey, um, partly because, partly inspired by the fact that (sighs) that Carrey is now playing Biden on SNL. Uh, Megan and Bronco, I don't know if the two of you have had an opportunity to see Carrie in character as Biden, but what's interesting about it is... You know, Biden's whole pitch and, you know, his his genuine political appeal is that he'll kind of steer things back to normality. Uh, What's so interesting about the SNL caricature of him is just how it's nothing like him. But it is the version of him that liberals want to see, because reality is so distorted now that the only way to deal with it, if you're a liberal or if you're a conservative, (laughs) is to kind of create a fant like erect a fantasia around yourself and just cling to it uh, as much as you can. So instead of anything resembling the real Biden, um, instead, you get this kind of like epic bacon grandpa who's like jumping around the stage at the presidential debate and like dancing and stuff like that, which like, of course, nothing like that even happened. And, you know, granted, it's a, you know, it's comedy, so it's supposed to be exaggerated, but it's not exaggerating anything that actually happened. It's its not derivative of reality in any kind of meaningful way. Instead, it's derivative of the fantasia, the fantasy, the fan fiction that liberals have had to erect around Biden. So I'm very much in agreement that it's going to be hard to reestablish any kind of shared sense of reality because The person who is supposed to be the the catalyst for that already, you have to erect so many layers of fiction around him in order for that to work. So I'm very much in agreement that the Democrats are going to have trouble reestablishing any kind of sense of normalcy, despite the widespread desire for it.
2: Uh, I think the other thing, just very quickly, that was very, very telling to me about that SNL segment was... Uh, you're right. I think most of the stuff that it made fun of Biden for or had Biden doing was not really related to reality and, and did kind of idealize him even at the same time as it sort of poked fun at his, his inability to remember things and, and that kind of thing. But to me, the real crowning moment was at the very end because what happens, Kamala Harris, played by Maya Rudolph, comes into the room and basically gives a stern talking to to, to <laughs> Trump, says, I'm going to be the one running the show. You know, the idea, the idea that Biden is just this kind of figurehead, this doddering figurehead that we have to deal with for four years, but really it's Kamala, you know, the the epic shade queen who is really going to be running things and we can look forward to the 2024. And and yeah, as we were all saying, that is, I think, the ultimate fantasy. You know, people haven't gotten it with Biden, but having Harris on the ticket is a way to give people that promise. Hey, uh, I know you have to deal with this guy who's not interesting or exciting or inspiring for now. But don't worry, there's gonna be some epic memes happening in four years, so just wait for that.
1: When there was like a little bit of a competition for the VP slot, I mean, you guys might remember that. It was, the the Twitter was all abuzz with the possibilities. And now in hindsight, It seems impossible to me that it could have been anyone but Kamala Harris. I mean, she really is the perfect encapsulation of the Democratic Party going forward. She's not only was she in my in my in my view, she was chosen precisely because she has the the fattest Rolodex of any, you know, democratic politician who would be eligible for the vice presidency. She's got, you know, the the richest people in, in the richest state, in the richest country in the history of the world on speed dial. But it's not just that. It's also that she's sort of cool, calm, and collected while also being sort of like sassy and hip, but in kind of a Pokemon go to the polls way, not in a way that actually really connects people. It's very artificial. It's very hollow, but it's also very meme friendly. And I think that we're looking at for a... Twelve, twenty, however many more years of Kamala to come. So everybody buckle in.
0: You know, we're all craving a return to normalcy, a return to politics as usual, a return to a time when well, we simply had a monoculture and we all agreed to it. And this week we look at a movie that asks the question of what happens when an ordinary gal who runs a venerable upper west side independent bookstore crosses paths with an ordinary guy who runs a, a Barnes and Noble like gentrifying behemoth conglomerate that moves in just down the street. The answer of course is to give in. <laughs> this week we watch Nora Ephron's You've Got Mail.
3: Just call me Joe.
1: Joe? Just call me Joe? Sure. As if you were one of those 22-year-old girls with no last name. Hi, I'm Kimberly. Hi, I'm Janice. She's beautiful. Don't they know you're supposed to have a last name? But She's a pill. You're yeah. <laughs> such a liar.
2: In life, they know they can't stand each other.
1: You're taking all the caviar? That caviar is a garnish.
2: Respect each other. Joe Fox. F-O-X. F-O-X. Or like each other
1: may i ask who you are no 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 but what they don't know hi <gasps> is that online they're in love with each other i don't know his name or what he does this woman is the most adorable creature i've ever been in contact with Warner brothers presents
2: do you think we should meet a modern day romance meet
3: why am i
0: compelled to even meet
2: her she couldn't be a real dog. tom hanks
0: see you later <laughs> don't worry about a thing
2: meg ryan From the director
0: of Sleepless in Seattle. What are you girls talking about? Cyber sex.
2: You've got mail.
1: I would really appreciate it if you would just go away.
3: I brought your flowers. Oh. So as often happens with films for the pod, you know, initially... There's some skepticism about, you know, are we actually going to be able to or do we have enough to talk about? What is this podcast? Can we really keep discussing these movies and have anything new to say about them? And uh, while this film, which uh, I saw for the first time, was very much two hours of cultural death on celluloid, um, boy is there a lot to talk about um it does that's interesting
0: some... i, I kind of liked it i thought it was charming i thought you've got america's sweethearts uh you know a lot of very nice uh, sunny sunny days in new york you know what's not to like
2: I, I will put my hand up and say that i i am a sucker for this movie uh i'm a sucker for yeah. any tom hanks Meg ryan uh pairing hell yeah um, this, I mean, <laughs> so many great movies. That, well, I mean, they've done two other, other movies. But, you know, Invisible <laughs> Kano is great as well. <laughs> Simpsons in Seattle is a classic. But um, what's funny to me about this movie is that, like, I it's, it's, it is charming. It is really pleasant. And you really like the two characters and you want them to be together. And so that's why the actual plot of it is so jarring. Because it's moral landscape is just completely twisted, just just turned upside down. And so it's like there's this contrast between how much you actually like the story and these two characters, at least for me. And then and like what the story is actually trying to tell you, which I find kind of bizarre and, and even a little bit monstrous.
1: It's completely monstrous. I just want to say that I, Luke, you're vastly outnumbered. I also think this movie is enormously charming and I had a great time watching it for like the seventh or 10th time. <laughs> yes.
2: Um,
1: but I, I will also say that watching it, trying to understand what the politics of the movie were, I, I came to the realization for the first time that this movie is extremely black this movie has a very very dark view of the world I'd like to also sort of make reference to and this popped into my mind when I was watching it this time to a couple of earlier films that have somewhat of a similar premise so you have uh i I think the closest analog is probably a movie like empire records right that's four years before this was in 1998 you've got males 1998 empire records is 1994 the 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 plot of empire records is that you've got an adorable charming eclectic group of uh, record store clerks whose independent record store is about to be sold and taken over by a massive chain store. And essentially the story is about how they put up an an opposition, they fight the man and they save the store, right? So four years of the Clinton administration passes and then then what do you get? You get You've Got Mail, which is a movie about a woman who runs a charming, eclectic little children's bookstore with a wonderful group of people. And it's gonna be put under by a, a mega chain store. And then it does, it goes under it just completely collapses and then she falls in love with the man who is responsible for that the capitalist who actually put her independent shop out of business because she realizes that these processes are inexorable they're inevitable there's nothing you can do to stop them and you got to just go with the flow because there's there, there's nothing you can do to change what's happening which seems to me like that is the absolute pinnacle of third way defeatism about any kind of 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 change now i don't i want to i want to say that obviously the empire records it's sort of outlook on how you would make social change is very typical of the 90s. It's sort of like, you know, independent businesses are going to save us, shop local, buy organic, personal consumption choices, and so on. So it's not a perfect movie politically, but You've Got Mail is much, much darker.
0: Doesn't it also seem though, like in the 90s, there was this trend towards uh, entertainments that were espousing this philosophy of being against selling out, which seems like kind of antiquated now. Now it seems like nobody is talking about how bad it is to sell out. I don't know if I can come up with an example offhand. No,
1: Will, I have examples. I have Please examples do. for you because they kept, they kept popping into my head when I was watching this. What I realized when I was watching this is because, is that between 1994 and 2000 was basically a string of popular mainstream movies where the, the, the entire plot hinged on the idea of whether or not a group of people or an individual person was going to sell out or retain their authenticity. And some of these include uh, one is the earliest one. Reality Bites. Hmm. That's 1994. Oh, I'm realizing that Empire Records is actually 95. So Reality Bites is 1994. And if you recall, in Reality Bites, again, a sort of charming, very alternative group of college graduates in Houston, Texas. They're they're sort of grungy. They're sort of, they're really hip. And um, one of them, Winona Ryder, makes a movie. She meets a sort of MTV-like executive who promises to put out her movie, but he cu- he cuts and edits it to look sort of something like the real world, and she hates. It. He's ruined her piece of art with his corporate crap. She's not. She's unable to actually retrieve her movie back from him. But she uh, then settles with Troy. Troy is, is her is Ethan Hawke's character, who is the sort of representation of everything that Ben Stiller, the corporate sellout character, is not. Troy is. A, he's a philosopher. He smokes a lot. He's very twisted, um, very <laughs> handsome, very brooding. Um, so she ends up ends up with him instead. So that that's 1994. That's Reality Bites. And Reality Bites it was a mainstream movie, but. It definitely had a little bit of like a subcultural edge to it. But look at 1996 Jerry Maguire. That is a movie, that is a mainstream movie about a man who decides that his soulless corporate entity is making business impersonal and taking all of the personal touch out of it, which is necessary. And so he decides to start a business of his own. He writes this manifesto about what it should be like. Uh, The only person who leaves with him after he's fired to go start his business is Renee Zellweger. I mean, it's really a very similar story. And I think it's this story about monoculture, about um, chains, about corporations, about corporate drudgery. Um, I think it's really uh, actually the movie office space is also a quite a similar movie where it tells the same story from the opposite side um, what it would be like if you if you didn't put up a, a good fight at least at the very beginning when they're all in cubicles right
0: oh also wayne's world where the charming public access show is going to be taken over by a slimy corporation and robbed of all its authenticity by rob Lowe, and probably also to some extent american beauty right because isn't kevin spacey in that movie kind of like stifled by bourgeois corporate culture and know has to bust out and you know work in a McDonald's again and try to bang his <laughs> daughter's friends. You know,
2: <laughs> absolutely. Also, we had Al yankovic's UHF. Uh, oh yeah very much similar i mean basically the same
0: and yet here is you've got male, which is espousing a very different philosophy and did this spark some kind of cultural shift was this the beginning of the end of the anti selling out narrative can
3: i can i hop in on this so i think i really like this thesis i mean i really think we found the skeleton key for unpacking the mass culture of the 1990s uh and you know we have we have overused the phrase in the podcast already, but I'm going to use it again. I mean, these are end of history films. There are films for a time when all of the big questions are taken to be settled. There is no public anymore. There are no public questions to be debated. There is only uh, the neoliberal subject and its self-actualization. That's the only sphere for any kind of personal autonomy. And well, I think as you were just suggesting, it's interesting to apply that thesis to a film like you've got mail because it actually shows the uh, further retreat I think, in a way, of late capitalism into an even bleaker view of human nature.
0: It's funny because You've Got Mail strikes me as a very liberal film. It's a very Clintonian movie where it's like, well, it's sad that the longtime independent store goes. We're all, we're all sad that it goes out of business, but ultimately, you have to accept it. Uh, whereas, you know, a conservative movie like this would be about, it would put up a face of being about, like, the brave small businessman who actually takes down this, like, latte sipping tom hanks character
3: this is a really important point because i think one of the things that it's now easy to miss about the 1990s particularly if you're on the left and you're used to thinking of liberalism as a sort of you know there's no libidinal side to liberalism there's no kind of ideological zeal it's just retreat and triangulation and all that kind of thing In the 1990s, especially in the United States uh, with the Atari Democrats and in Britain with New Labor, I mean, these people undertook this project. uh, They were ideologues. They really believed in this stuff. The third way was to them a constructive project, a project of modernization, a project of stripping the detritus of the 20th century away until all you had left was the raw realness, reality as real as it could be. And I think that is very much the world that uh, You've Got Mail is presenting. There are some fantastical elements about this film. It it shows, uh, for example, a fictional business called Starbucks, which is a cafe-style restaurant where uh, (laughs) we see uh, characters in the film purchasing premium-quality brews at affordable prices, which is something that has yet to be realized by real existing capitalism. It's It's too ambitious. There's also, you know, the framing device of the movie is people communicating with one another anonymously on kind of Message boards uh, on screens, which seem to be spread throughout New York City, and allow people to uh, communicate with one another. But besides that, it's pretty much just the 1990s, at least uh, at least as I remember.
1: I think this movie is is uh, really adorable in a lot of ways. One of the things I love most about it is the kind of 1990s cafe aesthetic that pervades the entire film. The it's sort of you know you can see it in the TV show Friends, Central Perk, right? The color palette is sort of like putty and mocha everything is sort of in between those two colors you know i love the things that date the movie there's um like at one point the the sort of fancy people the um the the publishing people are talking about eating sushi which feels very 1990s to me the idea that sushi is a novelty and that it sort of denotes that you're like an upper middle class professional also the idea that the the, the hor- sort of horrible woman, the upper middle class professional that we don't like in the movie is a, is a book publisher. This reminds me of the 1998 film Stepmom where also that is like, for some reason being a New York City book publisher is just like a very iconic job title uh, of the period. You know, like to talk about cappuccinos all the time. You don't hear so much about cappuccinos anymore. Um, talk Calling, you know, internet sext, uh, sexting cyber sex. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, co- co- constant having tic tacs in your purse like i feel like all of these things are just perfectly 1998 which i love um but i want to go back to the idea that the film is really anti-politics and i think that now that I've watched it again, thinking about this, it might be one of the most aggressively anti-politics films I've ever seen in my life, and probably the best encapsulation of this is a moment when, so Meg Ryan's character has an has an older woman who's a friend of hers. They don't understand the relationship. Um, Birdie is her name, and she confesses at some point that she had a love affair with General Franco, <laughs> and right. So so Meg Ryan tells this to her then boyfriend, and he finds this appalling. He says something as they're walking into a movie theater about what that's not, that's not normal to fall in love with a fascist dictator is not normal. I mean, if she had fallen in love with a, a socialist or an anarchist during the Spanish civil war, we could abide that, but falling in love with Franco is completely impermissible. And, Meg Ryan is taking the side that people do crazy things for love, right? And we're supposed to take Meg Ryan's side in this exchange. In fact, um, this catalyzes their breakup because she realizes that he insufferably cares so much about politics. (laughs) She confesses to him that she didn't vote. He finds that appalling. She finds it appalling that he found it appalling. And we're supposed to be on her side of this exchange that, you know, she's like completely checked out of politics and she has no thoughts on the difference between um you know fascists and anarchists during the Spanish civil war. Um, I thought that was really really startling actually.
2: This scene I think is the key to the movie and it's its vision uh, <laughs> its political vision. I, I think because it really just lays bare the kind of like almost nihilistic political worldview that it takes. And and you're right, you were not meant to take the great character seriously. He's he's portrayed as kind of a bit of a buffoon, someone who isn't nearly as charming and funny and like cool and likable as a Tom Hanks character. And the idea is that that Greg Kinnear's character is the one who who is insufferably political because he, he talks about politics and he cares about politics. But Tom Hanks running Meg Ryan out of business, that is not political. That's just sort of, that's life.
3: And Tom Hanks' dad, import, uh, importantly we learn, who is also involved in the business, is like a right wing. Like he's anti-lib, which I think is important.
0: And I also just want to point out that we see Tom Hanks early in the movie trying to read, what, what book is it, Little Women, I
3: think? No, no, no. It's, it's, he's trying no, to oh, read Pride and Prejudice. And, Prejudice. and let's, punt, let's bookmark that because this movie also has a sort of like men are from Mars, women are from Venus type of things.
0: It's supposed to be kind of charming that like this is a guy who really doesn't want to go outside his comfort zone unless he really has to.
2: There's definitely an important contrast there that they set up between the sort of older generation of tycoon for Tom Hanks' character who's, uh, sorry, Tom Hanks's father's character, who is kind of a philanderer and does a little bit of hippie punching. And actually, interestingly, Tom Hanks defends the people that are picketing the big, uh, his big box store that's moving in. But you know, I think it's really key to know that this, this anti-political element of the movie is really baked in from the beginning. And, and in case people have not seen the movie, what the movie is about is about two people falling in love who should and, and do, to some extent, hate each other. Uh, because Tom Hanks is a, is a big bookstore owner who's moving in and, and putting Meg Ryan's tiny little hole-in-the-wall, charming, family-owned bookstore out of business. And the way that Nora Ephron described this movie, she said that the idea was, uh, can you fall in love with a Republican? Uh, so so can, you, can love bridge something like political differences, and indeed, even anything... Like somebody doing something as terrible as putting the other person out of business which as, as we see in the movie is really personal for Meg ryan and um there's this really telling quote there's this oral history of the movie uh that was done in 2015 by vanity fair and uh Heather burns who plays one of Meg ryan's helpers the the young woman who works for her in the in the store i shouldn't say helper she's an employee uh who works at the store with her and she says and i'll read you the full quote Uh, I was young and really idealistic, and I got a little mad that she ends up with the guy who's putting her out of business. And Nora said to me, Heather, the older you get, you're going to realize that things change and there's not very much that you can do about it. And the city changes, and that's just the way it is. (laughs) And as I have gotten older, I realized she was right, that things change, especially in New York. It's just constantly changing for better or for worse. at the same time
3: that's absolutely incredible yeah i mean the the message of the film the the surface message of the film is just the standard rom-com message was which is that love conquers all but the message ultimately is that love and relationships can transcend class and political differences because those aren't really important and don't really exist in any kind of important way anymore. You know, in typical 1990s fashion, the film presents, you know, a kind of classless society where Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, despite their very different class locations, uh, they're going to the same parties, they're shopping at the same grocery store. We live in a classless society, except it's not Karl Marx's, it's Margaret Thatcher's.
1: Um, I wanna say also that nineteen ninety three was the year that James Carville married um, Mary what Mar- her Mary name? Magdalene. <laughs> uh. Mary, <laughs> Madeline, Mary, Mary Madeline, Mary Madeline, right. So, me. and I remember in in my in my household growing up, for some reason this was an object of fascination. I'm sure it was in many pro pro Clinton Democrat households throughout the 1990s. It would come up sort of like a household topic of conversation. See, conservatives and or Republicans and Democrats, uh they can bridge their divide. So this seems to be a theme of the 1990s, starting in '93. But then you look at a movie. I'm sorry to keep bringing up these other examples, like a movie like Reality Bites which was 1994, and it seems to be pushing back against that idea. Um, Winona Ryder's character takes a liking to Ben Stiller's character, but ultimately they do find that they are unreconcilable. She actually should be with someone more like her, someone who's a sort of like a young college grad, lumpen PMC artist, right? <laughs> and, and so that seems to be a culture war in the mid-1990s. Is among Democrats or liberals generally is the question of whether or not you could reconcile with Republicans in your, in your private life or not it seems like the James Carvilles and the Nora Ephrons won that debate.
3: Well, and there's a really important moment in you've got mail where just to go back to the Greg Kinner character uh Frank who's I think in some ways the the key to the movie uh just a few more details about Frank uh, we learn that he's into the 19th century English Luddite movement which is incredibly on the nose because it's all about how you know his way of being is like a is like a primitive like he's an anachronism like he's both a romantic anachronism for the Meg Ryan character but also Also, uh, a historical and political anachronism. We also learn that he likes Heidegger and Foucault. He kind of sniffs his typewriter. He listens to its kind of soft, soothing sound. And yeah, he's sympathetic to socialism and anarchism, which the film kind of ridicules. So in addition to being a sort of you know romantic anachronism, he's also a cultural anachronism too. But one of the key moments in the film is when he and Meg Ryan admit to one another that they're not actually in love with each other. And the way the film presents this, and they're both relieved, right? And the way the film presents this is absolutely extraordinary, because she says, is there someone else? And it turns out that he's fallen in love with a Republican, because the heart wants what it wants. And we all have to be realists, both in our romantic lives and in politics. And what's so extraordinary about this is that Frank, the Greg Kinnear character, he is not being a realist about his own life, or he has not been one until now. You know, he's got all these affectations of, like, being this, this you know, cultured uh, Upper West Side liberal. But really, those are just, I mean, they're just affectations. They don't really matter. And so uh, he, too, is uh, conceding the 3rd way philosophy and uh, is dating a Republican.
2: Uh, What's the first line of dialogue in the movie as well? It's Frank, Greg Kinnear's character, telling Meg Ryan about a newspaper article uh, that he just read about how they had to take solitaire off the computers in the Virginia state government because the employees hadn't done work, any work for six months because they were all playing solitaire, which I think that to me somehow just sets the tone for this movie's politics. And just very quickly on that, that point about the class of society that you were saying, Luke, I think there is a real effort in this movie too, whereas movies now, I think um, there, there is this kind of tendency to to say, you know, the rich are not like us, Uh, the rich are different. I was actually, I watched this movie, Ready or Not the other day, just this kind of relatively low budget horror movie with with no real politics, but it does have this kind of like uh, anti-rich, anti-wealth, class resentment kind of aspect to it. Whereas in this movie, there is an effort to say, actually the rich are just like us. Uh, You're right, they shop at the same places, they have our cultural sensibilities. There's even that scene where they contrast uh, Hanks's family uh, as they're all sitting around uh, oh, yeah. watching his niece mm-hmm. sing, and as a, as a woman is playing a piano. It's a very wholesome scene. And then right after that, there's the scene of um, Meg Ryan's crew basically doing the exact same thing in a bookstore, basically saying, "You know, these people very much—they're not different or 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 scary or or anything. Uh, the ultra-rich are very much just like the middle-class bookstore owner."
0: This is one of those movies that obviously wears its New York location on its sleeve. It's very enamored with the idea of New York. Uh, The characters are going to their favorite coffee shops and their favorite bagel shops or whatever. And yet it's also a celebration of the gentrification of New York. It regards the elimination of these small businesses, these iconic local businesses, as inevitable. And I wonder what it is that Nora Ephron likes so much about New York, if not those things. The whole appeal of a Barnes & Noble type store is that you have basically the same store in New York as you have in Boise, Idaho or wherever. What do you think it is about New York as a place, as a cultural signifier that attracts Nora Ephron?
1: I think you have to pair this movie with an essay that came out the following year an excellent essay by the writer megan dom called my misspent youth it's sort of a classic of the personal essay genre one of the it sort of spawned the kind of the future like jezebel personal essay writing um but as an early example 1999 and in the essay she writes about how she had sort of grown up watching woody allen films and wanting to move to the Upper West Side and specifically wanting to move into a pre-war apartment. She lived in the New Jersey suburbs. She wants to move to a pre-war apartment with wooden floors and Persian rugs and record players and, you know, all of that kind of like NPR, liberal, Upper West Side intellectual New York City 20th century charm. And in the essay, this is an autobiographical essay, she recounts how she spent uh, her entire 20s accruing personal credit card debt, attempting to live this kind of life that has had already disappeared. At, at some point, she finds out that in a, in a Woody Allen movie, Mia Farrow's apartment, uh, the character of Mia Farrow's apartment actually was Mia Farrow's apartment. Mia Farrow, a very Rich actress. The point being that this had already long since disappeared by the time that she arrived in New York City and she spent, she sort she, of she misspent a decade of her life chasing this dream. Um, so I think that there's something about the 1990s. So you could see it like in the movie Rent, too this idea that New York is a, a fantasy world for realizing your individual artistic and creative subjectivity, um, for existing in a place that is both anonymous and a place of community and really finding and discovering yourself and flourishing and coming in. Into your own as a unique individual, and obviously that that fantasy had long since passed by the time the late 90s rolled around. Well, you know,
0: I think this movie invites comparison to some of the Woody Allen movies in the way that it uh, presents a kind of high-toned, upper-middle-class version of New York, very kind of lily-white version of New York. A difference with those movies is in those movies, the Woody Allen ones, many of the people are kind of creative types or intellectual types. They're always talking about what they're reading and the cultural events that they're going to they're name dropping all the time whereas the world in you've got mail seems strangely anti-intellectual you know it seems sandpapered away or it seems to have sandpapered away all of those cultural signifiers and new york just becomes this kind of flavorless town of like Starbucks and barnes and nobles and Scenic-looking side streets,
1: and that's the message of the movie. It's like go with the flow. I mean, if you read, if you do compare, you've got mail, nineteen ninety-eight, to Megan Dawes' My Misspent Youth, nineteen ninety-nine. There are two paths available to uh, a woman around the age of thirty who wants to live this kind of like incredibly charming life in in Manhattan. One of them is to find a capitalist who can provide for her, so that she can be a a writer on her own time, which is what happens at the end of You've Got Mail. And the other one is to realize that you've drowned yourself in credit card debt. and flee and go find a place to live in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is what Megan Dom literally did in 1999.
3: It is interesting how much of uh, like how much culture, you know, and because of, you know, the outsized role that New York plays just kind of idiomatically in the culture, like how property values in New York have shaped so much about what particularly, you know, certain middle class people, many of them not even in New York, kind of think about like perceive what their life as kind of adults you know in their 20s or 30s are supposed to be like I think often of the you know we were talking about Mia Farrow uh, you were talking about Mia Farrow Megan and uh, it made me think of at the start of Rosemary's Baby right the premise is that Mia Farrow and John Castavetes you know he's like a an actor who's just kind of starting out and he's not successful yet and then they're buying their first apartment together Um, And this is supposed to be like the entry-level New York apartment, and of course it's absolutely palatial, like it's something that would cost several million dollars today. Anyway, I guess that's uh, somewhat uh, a digression from the film.
1: Well, no, I mean, I think it, I think I just want to add to that that if you in this essay by Megan Dom, there, there's a line, I have it here in front of me where she says, she's talking about when she was a child growing up in the New Jersey suburbs, her father brought her into the city to a client of his to an apartment of a client of his and she looked around and it was exactly as you'd imagine, you know, NPR playing on the radio, faded Persian rugs on the floor. She says porcelain hexagonal tiles that were coming loose in the bathroom, all of that sort of pre-war Upper West Side charm. And then she writes, it's difficult to imagine a time when I didn't walk into someone's apartment and immediately start the income-to-rent ratio calculations, and I would now guess that that apartment had been rent-controlled for decades already at that point, right?
3: <laughs> well, actually, you know, the famous sort of dig uh, in against Friends, right, is that, like, well, how do they afford, you know, like, Monica's like a chef or whatever, how does she afford this apartment? And uh, they're actually, the show offers an explanation for that, which is that it's her aunt's rent-controlled apartment that she inherited, because that's the only way that uh, Uh, that she could afford it.
2: But this is the thing about the movie, it exists in this sort of, you know, 90s end of history, uh, platonic ideal, this fantasy world where neoliberalism has conquered all and, and actually everything's fine. Beyond her being put out of business, which is just kind of explained as, well, this is just what happens. It, it never seems like it, anyone's living in any sort of material hardship. There's mention of rent control. But, you know, it's, these, are, these are kind of younger people and like the ideas are more established. Meg Ryan basically lives in a very beautiful lavish apartment that's not that different from the one that Tom Hanks, who's, you know, presumably like 10 times at least as rich as her, lives in. We never really see, despite the fact that her, her store is being put out of business, that this has any effect on her in terms of how she has to live. Everything seems hunky-dory. No, it's a, it's
3: a spiritual slight rather than kind of like, she's not materially deprived, it's just about honor.
1: Absolutely, she says at one point that she feels that a part of a part of her has died, and her mother, who started the store, had died all over again. I mean, that's the crux of of the issue: is that she's lost a part of herself. She's lost also she's lost the ability, or at least temporarily, to imagine herself as an individual who puts her own unique spin on things at, for a living. Right to to realize her subjectivity every single day. She wakes up, realizes her subjectivity, and then goes home and goes to sleep. So there's a temporary space in the movie where she's not able to do that. But luckily she affixes herself to a capitalist who is going to be able to provide for her to be able to do that once again on on her own terms now she doesn't have to run a business she doesn't have to have the pressures of that and i also feel like this movie is trying to comfort us with the idea that each one of us, when we look around and we see that, you know, the big box stores and the giant corporations and the CEOs are d- sort of driving all of the independent stores out of business and not to mention exploiting all of the workers who never even owned independent stores to begin with, right? But but sort of like ridding the world of its sort of charm and uniqueness, the film is saying, it's soothing us. It's saying, don't worry, their prosperity will eventually be your prosperity. Of course, that's a complete fantasy.
2: It, it makes it point that actually things are, are better this is actually better this way, because as you say, what happens to Meg Ryan now that she's been put out of business, she gets to write and uh, she'll probably be very successful at it. And this is even before she gets with Tom Hanks. You know, despite the fact that she has seemingly no more uh, income that's coming in, she is somehow able to just have the spare time to, to write a book for free um, and she's she's really enjoying herself. And there's another element to this where, like what happens with the actual big box store, Fox & Sons? At the beginning or near the beginning, when they are talking about this in the boardroom, about the, the big expansion they're doing, Tom Hanks kind of mentions, uh, I think it's Tom Hanks, uh, somebody in the room says, yeah, these people are picketing, but we'll get them in the end. We'll seduce them with our low prices. You know, And the idea is it's just a matter of time. People just have to realize the benefits of these, massive corporate stores and then they'll come around and what happens at the end the the one objection the one negative that meg ryan's character is able to cite to, to, to explain why her store is better which is that the people that work there don't actually know anything about books by the end what we learn is that tom hanks has now hired someone who's shaken things up and now that you, you cannot work in Fox and Sons on the floor without having a PhD in literature. And so, uh, I mean, obviously, exaggeration, but the idea is there's something very amusing to me that this is sort of the uh, kind of utopian ending that the movie has come up with, which is that uh, overqualified graduate students are now being um, hired to do minimum wage For
3: uh, for Fox and such, I think uh, I think the scene uh, that precedes that uh, Bronco is a really uh, is really important one because when she finally does go into the store, there's a series of shots that I think are meant to establish that actually all her objections to the homogenization of book sales. Uh, are completely wrong because she goes up to the children's section and it turns out it's really wholesome and there's children and they're sitting around reading the books. Uh, it turns out actually the big the big store, is better. There's this small kink, but it turns out that if you just exploit uh, workers more, <laughs> you can solve that as well.
1: And they hire. They hire. Joe. Uh, Joe jo Fox hires her employee, the the guy who was, uh, you know, <laughs> who lives in the rent control department who works in her place. So that solves the issue. Uh, furthermore, I would like to add that that guy is uh, also in Reality Bites. These movies really are of a time, <laughs> a time, a time period, and a piece. And and
3: end. he's in Friends as well.
1: Um, oh, my God, you're uh, right, he is. He's uh, Phoebe's, Phoebe's husband. husband.
2: He's her, her gay husband who it turns out he, <laughs> he's straight. He didn't realize he was straight. That is absolutely
1: true, and I can't believe how much friends all of us have. <laughs>
2: yeah,
3: it's a little embarrassing.
1: You know, sometimes I wonder. What? Well, if I hadn't been Fox Books and you hadn't been The Shop Around the Corner and you and I had just met. I know. Yeah, yeah.
3: I would have asked for your number.
1: I want to bring something up that we haven't talked about yet so that we can, I think we need to talk about the social media aspect of this. I mean, this movie is very dated, and it's it's very sweet, I thought, to see the first social media addict on, on film. I mean, she literally, she waits for her boyfriend to leave the house, and then she sort of like salivates and rubs her hands together before going and sitting in front of her computer and opening up her social media application, AOL. And I just thought, oh my God, this is like, a very optimistic look at something that would actually cause serious mental health problems for large portions of the population in 20 years.
0: It was hard for me to remember how accurate a depiction this was of the internet at the time, because there are so many movies from the 90s where, like, so few people had computers in the 90s that you could basically put anything onto a computer screen in a movie from the 90s, and people would just accept it. I couldn't remember to what extent people actually went on chat rooms like this and communicated with complete strangers and you know, formed these bonds.
1: I mean, I absolutely did. I went on AOL chat rooms. Did you guys not go on AOL chat rooms? Did you not use the ASL code?
0: No, my, my parents uh, forbade me from doing that. I
3: grew up uh, rural, so we didn't really this wasn't really an option like uh I didn't have any kind of high-speed internet until like 2007. This was kind of delayed for me, but what I think's really funny is that this shows us kind of the normie internet of uh the late 1990s, but you know, I think behind the scenes certainly if not exactly uh, contemporaneous with when the movie's set a few years after, there was also the whole like anonymous internet uh the, the totally anonymous kind of like uh, uh, dark web internet that was going on before that was like anonymous message boards, but like less wholesome than, uh, than AOL, which is, I guess, this sort of precursor to like 4chan and things like that later.
2: So it's a very misleading picture of the kind of person you're likely to meet at a, uh, in the chat room. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And actually, yeah, it's a big contrast to now where, because, uh, the kind of political shocks of the last five or so years have... By many people, been interpreted as, as the the fault of social media, as if like it's Twitter bots and fake news and, and random memes that have you know led to Trump winning and, and Brexit and pretty much every terrible thing that's happened over the last few years. Now it's the polar opposite. The, the internet is not this wholesome thing where you meet cool, quirky business tycoons, and actually it's it's a place that's it's full of danger and and sinister uh, motives and even geopolitical intrigue.
3: Uh, There's one other thing that I think is really important to bring up. Uh, I guess it doesn't really quite fit into discussion about social media. But I think another very important detail about Meg Ryan's character that hasn't come up yet, and I think it speaks to the film's real agenda, is that there's a moment when uh, we see her actually questioning her life as a small business owner. She asks herself, you know, what do I really do? And she says, do I do this because I like it or because I'm not brave. I think the message there, certainly the way I interpreted it, is that this is Meg Ryan's version of the Frank character saying maybe I need to you know, bone a Republican if I'm gonna be honest with myself. What this is saying is actually Meg Ryan isn't self-actualizing through uh, having the business. She's not a striver. And the only way to, to self-actualize is to be a striver like Tom Hanks. Maybe that's reading too much into it, but what did you guys think no, about No, I think this? you're
1: right. Mm-hmm. I think you're right, and I actually wanted to draw a parallel with the movie High Fidelity, which came out two years later, where we see a small business owner who runs, obviously, it's John Cusack's character, and he runs a record shop, and it's really similar. There's like two employees and we love them and they're charming and they have a great dynamic. And he also realizes that he's in a rut and he needs to push himself and be more creatively ambitious, but it's actually quite a different outcome. He he decides that he's gonna go find up and coming artists and create a record label and release their music on a record label, sort of like create a record label for his record store. Um, so I guess I wanted to say that the, that the progress isn't totally linear. I mean, You've Got Mail definitely does mark, the, I think the darkest, bleakest outlook on this particular, question of selling out of all of the movies, but two years later we got another movie that's much more similar to Reality Bites or Empire Records in its attitude towards these questions. So obviously You've Got Mail was the sort of um, pinnacle of a particular type of just go with the flow. Capitalism is happening, monoculture is happening, just buckle in for the ride, have a good time, try to find a little slice of happiness for yourself, and honestly you might end up finding more self-actualization this way than you did
2: before. Well I think it's key that the movie also kind of acknowledges, and just- himself, uh, Tom Hanks' character, acknowledges that what he did was kind of a shitty thing to do. When they finally have to meet he tells her, I mean obviously she doesn't know at this point that uh, he's the one she's been corresponding with, but he tells her when she says a few mean things to him that it was actually deserved and uh, provoked. And she has every right to be angry at him.
0: Well, that's why it's a liberal movie and not a conservative movie because people ba- feel bad about things. But
3: then she also she also apologizes and the point is just that everybody's feelings are valid.
2: Well, because the thing is he, what he did was bad, but the problem is this is just the natural way of things. This is just what happens and more to the point, what has to happen. So yes, it sucks. But you can't stay that angry at someone about this because ultimately they are just following the natural order of things.
0: I think you got to look at a guy like Tom Hanks, and you got to look at the movies he makes as the most powerful actor in the world. You got to look at Forrest Gump and this, and Saving Mr. Banks, and everything else, and just acknowledge that this man is the enemy.
1: I'm just, I'm just astonished by the fact that you've got mail is. That much more reactionary than Jerry Maguire. If you had asked me earlier in the week before I rewatched You've Got Mail, I would have definitely said the opposite. Jerry Maguire was much more of a I don't know. It just it seems like a less sweet. It was about guys, about sports, you know, business, sports, business, etc. Uh, Jerry Maguire actually does try to hold on to the idea that business. This is a very sort of like like liberal idea too. But the idea that business is best when it has a sort of personal touch when there's um, when there's someone who's giving you know t- care and time and attention to their client. You've got male com- almost completely dispenses with this idea. Actually, that's not true. Bronco mentioned that it sort of tries to resuscitate the idea at the very end, but it keeps the corporate structure in place.
3: There's a, another scene that I think is really important, which uh, you know doesn't quite fit in to anything we're talking about specifically, but um, I'm surprised it hasn't come up yet, given the thesis we're developing about you know this movie perfectly encapsulating the mainstream ideology of the 1990s, because uh, there's an important scene where Tom Hanks, uh, his I guess. It's not his daughter, right? It's his niece?
1: No, mm. it's his aunt. It's his aunt. That's a, that's a weird quirky right, detail right. of the movie, right? Because his father's a philanderer, or his his grandfather right. and father are both philanderers. Right? Okay,
3: so I I uh, I missed that. I thought that was just like a whimsical joke that he was telling Meg Ryan in a kind of flirty way. No, he
1: has a he has a child aunt.
3: Um. So anyway, Tom Hanks and his aunt go into the the store where Meg Ryan is doing, and the store I think is called the Shop Around the Corner, because you know it's, it's kind of a universal stand-in for the you know uh, mom and pop uh, small business.
0: Well, also this film is a remake of a movie called The Shop Around the Corner too, so it's a little winking reference to that.
3: Right, right. Um, and so they go into the store where Meg Ryan is reading to children from the Roald Dahl autobiography, Boy... And later, they're shopping. Uh, they're shopping in the store. Tom Hanks picks up a first edition of some kind of book, and he's talking to one of the employees. The employee says, um, "You know, oh yeah, all the illustrations are hand drawn, or something like that." And Tom Hanks says, "Is that why it's so expensive?" And the employee replies, "No, that's why it's so valuable." And I think this is such an important statement about commodities under late capitalism and what they and what they mean because. Uh, What Tom Hanks is saying uh, or what his line is kind of, uh, I think, implying what we're meant to infer from it is that true realism demands that the market sets prices for things. <laughs> things do not have intrinsic value. It doesn't matter that this is like a first edition book that an artist actually physically did the drawings for, and that's why it's so expensive. We need to dispense with those, with that kind of pretense because the market is the key determinant of value. Again, perhaps that's reading in too much, but I feel like I'm radicalizing on my, my view of this film as we're discussing it.
1: What's sad is that, that- that same, that same employee, the one who says no, it, that this is why it's so valuable, is the one who ends up going to work in Fox and Sons at the end. So that exchange teaches us the difference between a sort of like sentimental approach to objects um, and a sort of like wholly, purely market-based commodity approach to objects, but the latter actually wins out and we're okay with that. There's a whole cranberry soundtrack at the end telling us that we are completely okay with it.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, one, one uh, other thing I would bring up about this, because we mentioned the movie's lineage, uh, of, of course, uh, it's, a, it's a remake of The Shop Around the Corner, which I confess I've not seen. I, I wanted to, to watch it in advance of this. But I actually found out during the most cursory bit of research that uh, The Shop Around the Corner is based on an uh, earlier play called The Parfumery. Um, which was written by Miklos Laszlo, I I think I'm pronouncing that that right. He was a Hungarian Jew. He wrote this play in about 1937, uh, and then he ended up moving to the United States uh, because of, uh, obviously, uh, the rise of fascism. So it's interesting to note the origins of where this movie comes from compared to its politics, because the play Perfumery is quite unlike uh, You've Got Mail. It is very aware of class difference, it's very aware of the looming threat of fascism. It's, it's sort of set in a very economically precarious time where no one, including the, the store owner, has money. And basically what it's about is it's mm-hmm. about this, um, I guess, drugstore, I suppose, and, and the sort of the different uh, lives and worlds within it. There's the, uh, the, the owner who, who suspects or, or is informed that uh, his wife is having an affair with one of his employees, then there's two employees that, that hate each other, but it turns out that they have been uh, corresponding via letter for a very long time and are, are secretly in love with each other, but they don't realize it, which, of course, that, that's what became these these later movies, including You've Got Mail. Um, but it's so interesting, and I, I don't think it really, you know, I'm not sure Nora Ephron was, like, aware of this history when she wrote this, but it, it, it is such a... Uh, reflection of the different times that these were written in that the original one is very much about you know people not having money there is class difference baked into it it's very much uh, written in the shadow of fascism and then you've got mail written in the 90s is turned into this completely apolitical class flattened story about how uh, love conquers all including someone being a fascist dictator
3: I wanted to say this a bit earlier. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a strange thing to bring up in relation to uh, the film You've Got Mail. But it's amazing, you know, you can see this shift in so many different places in, in culture, in, uh, you know, the fact that the same kind of basic story or story template can have such different meanings in different decades. But I found myself, weirdly enough, thinking about the liberal philosopher John Rawls when I was watching this movie, because that's what doing this podcast for several years does to your brain. And uh, I think back to my time in grad school reading John Rawls, he really only did two kind of major books. There's A Theory of Justice, uh, which came out, I believe, in the 1960s. And then there's Political Liberalism, which came out, uh, I think, in the 1980s. There will be a lot of Jacobin readers listening to this. And so if I've gotten the dates wrong, I apologize. But that's basically the general kind of scope for John Rawls's two books there's pretty marked shift in these two books. In A Theory of Justice, which is kind of a, I mean, it's like the highest level liberal thinking kind of in the Neo-Kantian tradition. And it engages very substantively with, questions of redistribution. Um, it even op- it leaves the door open to possible public ownership of the means of production. And then by the time Rawls writes Political Liberalism, which is kind of, it's, you know, it's his follow-up book and involves kind of many of the same ideas. It's a revision of the thesis. A lot of that stuff is gone. And instead, you have this kind of overriding focus on just how do we, like the, the key question for politics and for political theory is how do we reconcile you know, the need for kind of collective decision making and there being a public with the reality of divergent private moralities, like people have different views, and we're just on all kinds of questions. And actually, now what we need to do is figure out how do we privatize all of those questions? How do we reconcile them kind of outside of the public sphere? And how do we use the public sphere to kind of outsource those questions? Because in the 1990s, or by the 1990s, and you know, thanks to the neoliberal revolution of the 1980s, this is really where politics is kind of uh, this. This is this is all that's left. Is the big questions are kind of settled. We can't really. Uh, they're no longer sites for any kind of real contestation. We've left all that behind in the 20th century. And as we march boldly and in, uh, forward in, into the unknown of the new century, all there really is, you know, is kind of people self actualizing uh, in various ways. Um, and I, this. Makes me think of another line in the film that I think is really important when the old woman uh, who dated Franco (laughs) announces to Meg Ryan that closing the store is the brave thing to do. She says it shows you can imagine yourself with a different life. Marching into the unknown, so you can't resist the ineluctable march of capitalist progress, folks.
1: Sure, uh, and all all that is solid is is melting into air, right? And <laughs> the best thing for you to do is to just allow allow it to melt, to not try to hold on to it, because that would be somehow small minded or not courageous to try to hold on to something that's de- definitely inevitably going to change. Um, I had something else to say about something that you said, Luke, about reconciling sort of private political differences, and this. I want to go back to this theme of um the sort of like George, uh, james carville mary madeline relationship uh, i guess they got married in 1993 it seemed to be a sort of dominant storyline throughout the 1990s like i said it totally was in my house um i obviously i didn't realize that, i don't remember this but this shows up and you've got mail i mean it's got to be a reference to it right when her political lefty ex-boyfriend announces that he's fallen in love with a republican woman on tv right that's got to be a reference so like i said before i think that at least at this time that perspective Actually, won out over the perspective that people that there's something about your private political beliefs that actually is important that you wouldn't those are those are not sort of um, it's not an, it's not an, ascriptive identity. It's not something that other people assign to you. It's actually a part of you. And that if you hold those beliefs and you hold them to be true, then you should actually try to defend them. And if you felt very strongly about defending them, then it would be very difficult for you to be in an intimate relationship with somebody who didn't see the world in the same way that you did, because it would mean that they didn't have the same values as you. And by the late 1990s, this idea has been defeated. And in a way, political subjectivity itself has been defeated through that act of defeat. But I will say that something has changed. because now here we are in 2020 and even in the dominant culture, that storyline is dead. It has come to an end. Now we have increasing political polarization. And it's the case that, you know, you have to, uh, at Thanksgiving, you need to, um, you know, set your family members straight. Um, you know, I would never date a, a Republican. I would never date a Democrat and so on. So it seems that something something has changed. I mean, I think what really has changed is that the third way consensus, the sort of neoliberal consensus has stopped holding. And so that fantasy of, of reconciling our personal private political subjectivities with ones that are completely different has has also fallen apart.
2: It's a testament to how things have changed for the better, uh, I think, at least in terms of our political discourse, that this movie, when you watch it now, it does come off as bizarre. It is, as I said at the start, it's kind of moral calculation is so odd and just does not make sense. And I think a lot of people would read it that way now, but I think the fact that it was baked into this movie in 998 and uh, you know, no one commented on it at the time and it was just sort of put in this otherwise completely inoffensive romantic comedy shows you how deeply that worldview was accepted at the time. And thank God for as, as bleak as, as some of the things that are happening now are, thank God that we are not still stuck in that era, I will say for one.
1: Do you guys know the television show Six Feet Under?
3: I've never seen it. Uh-huh. never watched
1: it. It ended in two thousand five and I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but oh, no, no, at the end I'm gonna I'm, gonna, I'm
2: right, gonna plug your ears. Plug your ears it's... myself out of the out of the chat for a second and then you you, <laughs> tell, me, you guys, and then tell me when the spoilers are I don't I don't wanna I have been planning to watch this for like Oh good. Oh I'm so glad.
1: Bronco, I'm I'm genuinely very glad that you're about to watch this show. So don't listen okay, okay, to it. Okay, okay, let me say
2: just tell me in the chat when that's when <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, mm. so sp- spoiler alert: our favorite, um, very alternative, brooding, moody character Claire, who hates you know corporate America and monoculture and blah blah mainstream culture, etc. Um, she ends up with a Republican at the end. We see the sort of the end of their. We see w- their future. It sort of pans out in front of us, and she actually is happily married to this man that she's met, who's totally different from her. He's a he's a sort of a corporate drone, or, and he or maybe he's a, maybe he's a corporate lawyer i can't remember but in the show it's portrayed as her growing up like we were supposed to believe that this is an act of and a sign of maturity that our our lost moody brooding claire has finally found her way in the world and to symbolize that she's found her way in the world she's paired with an older richer republican man and she's happy about it but i honestly think that was the last gasp That's 2005. Mm -hmm. I mean, by maybe right after Obama was elected. I don't think that you could have made that show with that same ending and expect people to feel excited or happy about it.
0: Uh, By the way, Megan, just as a digression, have you ever heard of a movie called uh, Speechless? Which it was actually a romantic comedy from the '90s that was about the James Carville, Mary Madeline. Like it was not not using the name, but it was about that situation. Uh, it had uh,
3: Michael Keaton and Gina Davis in it.
1: Oh, that's incredible! Um, no, I haven't heard of it. I'm gonna go watch it.
3: <laughs> well, we're gonna have to do an episode on that sometime. Something that I do think we should discuss. I mean, we've got we've we've gotten a lot out of this film, but I think um, we'd be remiss if we didn't. Uh, talk a little bit about the the gender politics of the movie, because uh, the film really beats us over the head with this kind of like, men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of thing. There's a scene uh, early on where because they've been chatting um, over AOL, uh, you know, I guess about their literary preferences, you know, she, Meg Ryan has sold Tom, Tom Hanks on the idea that he needs to read Pride and Prejudice. And there's this very funny shot where uh, it cuts to him reading from this Jane Austen book and, you know, his body language is meant to suggest like, you know, clearly he can't make heads or tails out of this, you know, freaking chick lit. And then later, you know, he won't stop referencing the Godfather. That's like his only cultural touchstone. And I don't really know what to do with uh, do with this or if there's anything interesting to be said about it, but... Um, it did, it did really strike me that this kind of recurs throughout the movie.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. This is a recurring theme of the uh, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Nora Ephron cinematic universe, <laughs> because in Sleepless in Seattle, there's a whole subplot about how women love an affair to remember and men love the dirty dozen. Um, it, it's a joke that keeps coming up and like uh, each of the respective genders are breaking into tears talking about these movies.
1: I mean, half of the jokes on the TV show Friends are essentially about the differences between men and women. Uh, I think Friends is really funny because I think that all of the actors are incredible physical actors, but the content of the jokes is really stupid. It's mostly like men are dumb and they only care about sex and sports and women only care about, you know, shopping and gossiping and romance and so on. And so I think this was a major theme in the 1990s. And I think also one thing that's interesting, I haven't worked out what I think about this, but as to the gender politics of the film, there's also Tom Hanks's... Girlfriend throughout much of the film who he breaks up with, who is portrayed as kind of a horrible, shrewish businesswoman. That's Parker Posey's character. In Parker Posey's character and Meg Ryan's character, we're shown the distinction between two visions for neoliberal empowered female subjectivity uh, one of them sort of goes overboard with the with the careerism there's something about how she's really harsh um there's, there's a line that tom Hanks says about how she makes coffee nervous and then there's meg ryan's character who also is pursuing um, her own she's not pursuing any any sort of like a collective emancipation or liberation she's pursuing her individual subjective flourishing but she's all she's very sentimental and she's very sweet and she's 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 very gentle, and she lacks some of those characteristics. I think it's an, it, it probably captures a very interesting moment in the evolution of neoliberal feminism where the the girl boss is not someone to aspire to. It's actually someone to look down on. Uh, but we're headed we're headed in the, that sort of that sort of girl bossy direction in, insofar as we're we're moving away from second wave feminism and its emphasis on collective emancipation or liberation.
2: There's uh, with Hanks, even though there is that kind of bit about the Godfather, he is portrayed as a, as a different kind of, of man to his father, who is like the more stereotypical kind of masculine uh, boor, I guess, you know. Uh, he sleeps with his nannies, and you know, he has like eight kids or whatever, and he's just kind of a jerk, and he's very gruff. And in Tom Hanks is kind of more the, he, This is the modern man. He's, yeah, he watches The Godfather, but guess what? He's, he's sensitive, he reads books, he, he'll ask you about yourself, that kind of thing. It's like a transition away from an older archetype.
3: If this movie were made today, I can imagine the Greg Kinnear character, the, Like there'd be like a red flag early on. There'd just be like a copy of Infinite Jest uh, on the shelf. <laughs> or actually, that, the new one apparently is uh, Goethe. Ladies, if he's into Goethe, um, big, big red flag. Um, anyway, I guess, you know, I think we've more than done uh, this movie justice.
0: You don't think there's another 90 minutes in here?
3: <laughs> I mean, I... Did... <laughs> I did want to t- <laughs> I did want to bring up uh, uh, the sort of proto uh, proto version of you know uh, well you say you're on the left and yet you use an iPhone and you uh, have a Twitter account um, because this comes up a number of times in the movie uh, there's uh the scene where uh, she is trying to pay with a credit card and it turns out it's cash only and even though she runs a cash only business uh, of course she's using a credit card because that's the more uh That's the more convenient thing. That's the more real, that's the realist option. And also Frank complains about VCRs and how they're ruining everything uh, in a TV interview. But then, of course, as he's watching the interview, he, uh, you know, wants it recorded with the VCR.
1: Honestly, Luke, I didn't even catch that because the idea that there would be some sort of cultural significance to the difference between using cash and using a credit card is so far in the rear view mirror that I literally didn't even catch it. <laughs> I thought it was just like they were just setting up a scene where he would be able to swoop in and help her and show that he was being nice. I did not get the cultural significance at
3: all. So that was a very lengthy, and uh, for me anyway, incredibly enjoyable discussion of uh, the state of things and uh, the film You've Got Mail, which it turns out- Is very charming,
0: uh, uh, <laughs> uh, two great leads, just a delightful <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> depiction of, uh, of a New York that we all want to live in, you know? <laughs>
3: <laughs> turns out uh, the film, uh, we, were, we, were, we weren't sure we were going to have anything to say about it, but is the skeleton key for unpacking the entire culture of the 1990s. So I was very sheepish, Megan and Bronco, about uh, asking you to watch this movie in advance of our podcast. So thank you for our, uh, for your service. Uh, this was great. Love to have the two of you back. So once again, two of my colleagues from Jacobin, two of my favorite writers, uh, Bronco Markatic and Megan Day, thank you both for joining us.
1: Thanks, guys. Thanks.
2: male. To, to, uh, the most fascinating part of me is that the movie is about infidelity. <laughs> but, Bronco, we've stopped rolling. <laughs> I know, but it's at a time of like, in the 90s, this is like literally the year of the Lewinsky-Clinton scandal. Oh and my god, we, like, right. This is the, the, at this time infidelity was like the, the biggest moral crime you could do. And the key thing this movie is that it's showing that actually this is okay, because it's it's less bad than like him destroying or like, like, yes, this is, this is not great, but it's, it's okay because they get together in the end. Um, and like, and so it actually violates the kind of moral strictures of the time while also being completely wrapped up in the sort of like, oh yeah, you know, the, the, creative, the structural capitalism is fine kind of idea. This
1: was really common. It was actually actually very psychologically damaging for all of us who grew up in the nineties that a lot of films in in the, in the nineties, are hinged around the idea that people will naturally discover over the course of their relationship if they're not right for each other, and then they'll both look at each other and sort of feel like, "We figured it out. We're not. Supposed <laughs> It'll to be, be okay." Yeah, <laughs> it turns yeah. out which, that's which, not what being an adult is like. Which, being as we all know, is, like, is exactly you know, I have no <laughs> idea. Just, as mean, we
3: all know, is exactly like, how every breakup <laughs> happens in practice. <laughs> oh, yeah. You just there's just a moment of instant revelation. It always happens at the same time. <laughs> it's always seamless, and everybody walks away happier. It's great in an well, elevator, the, no the, less.
2: Neoliberal world that it creates, the fantasy capitalism creates. Like it's like, oh yeah, if things like worked this, this way, sure, that would be an idyllic. Like, oh yeah, you can just like be out, put it's out a so business, so comforting. Go off and like become a writer. And it's great. It's like, oh yeah, who could argue against this? Everything's going so well. <laughs>